Today's show is sponsored by our friends at Orca Coors, and you know it's that time of the year, so Black Friday, there's going to be deals, Cyber Monday, it's going to be 25% off site-wide, and that is, I mean, I'm telling you that normally knowing that if you use orcacoors.com backslash bourbon, you're going to get 15% off your whole order, but if you wait until Monday, you're going to get 25% off site-wide. There's other deals going on, there's going to be post-holiday clearance, make sure you go to orcacoors.com and make it last, they have the best roto molded coolers out there they have awesome chasers and barrels and all sorts of good stuff you can get the cup that looks like a whiskey barrel it's awesome go to orcacoolers.com y'all know we've been doing stuff with get picks the app the app is great but there is new stuff coming on december 10th there are going to be picks packs that is groups of three whiskeys or spirits. They they have other stuff besides whiskey that you can put together in a curated box. You could try some stuff out. You could sample before you buy. You could get blind packs. You're going to have to go to the app, and that's pickshop.com. You can find out more information. You can sign up to understand what's going to come out on the 10th. You can also get the app. You can get the Picks app on there. We're working on stuff for the app all the time. We just put out a new update where you can actually see your mutual friends on the app now, which you know you would think would be an easy thing, but it takes development work. So all of that stuff, go to PickShop.com, get the app, check out the Picks Packs, and I'll see you on Picks, y'all. Hello, hello, everyone. My name is John Edward. Zeke Baker is on assignment, and together we make the Dad Drinking Bourbon. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, thank you for making us a part of your day. It is a awesome day. I mean, I've already been talking to this guy for 20 minutes, and I know that we hit it off very, very well, and this dude is a cool dude. He is out at Savage & Cook Distillery, owned by renowned winemaker Dave Finney. The distillery opened in 2018. We're going to hear the whole story about this distillery, what he's doing out there, and that is Mr. Jordan Villa. Thank you very much for for joining dad's drinking bourbon absolutely nice to drink with you john it's always i have three pours you you sent the burning chair lip service and then just something with numbers on it that i'm very excited to try with you as well yes yes something cryptic it's always uh you know helps for the mystery of the whole thing i feel like when there's just numbers on it i feel like it's a barrel and that's always a good thing so we are going to get to the tasting portion no y'all we always are sipping on something while we're having a good conversation but Jordan is the master distiller over there. So, I mean, it, it's got to be tough. He has a reputation, your boss, of being a very, very, very good winemaker. You are out in California. Wine is a very big thing. You finish a lot of your whiskey. So no pressure, right? No pressure in what you do every day. Not really. Not really. Actually, you know, I kind of came up in the winemaking field. This is my, I started out in Napa, which is the only reason I'm back here working with, with Dave Finney. Uh, he was always a, one of the greatest stories uh, young winemakers heard. We're not that far apart in age. He's a, he's a little older than me, about four years. You know, he really kind of came up in a scrappy sort of way. Uh, it was inspiring while I'm trying to, you know, just get a job at the on the crush pad unloading trucks a young winemaker and this guy's doing it in his garage making something of his own you know and then uh, uh just crushing it with his his whole aesthetic that he puts together it was really quite a bold move i mean i, I and it 
could have not worked. It just happened to be, and he'll be one of the first to tell you this was like just the right time. You know, people mainly buy, bought their wines varietally. You know, if it didn't say Cabernet Sauvignon on the label, they came in looking for a Cabernet Sauvignon or they came in looking for a Pinot Noir. They came in looking for a Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay, blah, blah. But you know, the rules on those things, uh, 75% of the grapes in there have to be what's stated on the bottle. And he didn't like that. He liked the wine that he drank from different countries that didn't have these kind of stringent rules and just had regional names. So you could blend any grapes that grew in that region together into these beautiful wines. And we didn't really have a, that kind of wine here. We had what emerged as Meritage, but it never really took off. It was kind of just like a made up name. He, he started doing it with the prisoner. He labeled it Red Blend and just rolled the dice, like give it a shot. But what he figured out is that like, I'm going to put a label on this that people can't help but like stare at for a minute and wonder what the fuck was this guy thinking? And it worked because uh, they would pick it up, they would look at it. Maybe they'd buy it as like a, ah, you know what? I got to have one of these or this person's going to love this because it's so edgy. It's so weird. And uh, as soon as they pulled the cork, and this is a major part of his philosophy, what they pour into their glass and drink has got to just blow them away. Because otherwise you've sold them a label and nobody wants to spend 29 or dollars or $45 for a label. If they do, they're going to leave it on the bar and be like, yeah, that's yeah, cool. But you know, you're never going to buy it again. And I had a similar philosophy with, you know, I've been at this for a long time. I haven't done anything else. Brief stint in the restaurant industry. But like I said, I, I moved to, to Napa, uh, started studying for the MW program. Peter Marks over at Copio, which was a center right in the middle of Napa. Ended up doing a harvest, my first harvest at Round Pond Estate over at Rutherford. Working on the crush pad under Kerry Gott and eventually under Brian Brown. He took over for him. Made some wine with a, a winery in Sonoma called Anaba, A-N-A-B-A. That was fun. Got to work with an extremely talented winemaker, Jennifer Marion over there. But in the off season, found a little distillery in Petaluma, California, which is a little bit North Bay. And uh, Man, I just fell in love with it. It was the uh, not being at the mercy of the grape, not being at the mercy of sunshine and rainfall and random fungus and parasites that would move in and poor vineyard managers and just all the myriad things that make grape growing, which is, you know, 80% of, of winemaking. That's probably unfair to say to winemakers. 75% of winemaking. <laughs> I'll give him 5% more. <laughs> Grains grown in a, a, a you know, in, a, in the right kind of place, they're, they're really consistent. And we grow them in, in, you know, hot areas and we dry them, stabilize them. And then uh, making spirits out of them is just a, a careful process of handling them the right way. And uh, before all of this, I studied chemistry. I do have a degree in chemistry. Uh, not a chemical engineer, but I... Uh, I liked repeatability. I liked being able to measure variables, record them, and repeat them by keeping all the uh, little things we do the same. And that's what you get if you do this right. Now, I'm not saying there's not an element of surprise to it. Uh, sometimes things happen you can't you know count for. There's definitely uh, an artistic part of it as far as you know you can't just follow a procedure. And I can tell somebody my mash bill and my whole method, and they can buy the same equipment. And they make a whiskey and it tastes completely different. I've seen this happen many times. There's uh, a great business book, not to jump in on you, called Cake. Yeah, no. And I am not like a fan of business books because I feel like you open up a business book and it's like time management is good. And it's like, really? No shit. I didn't know that. I had to pay you 20 bucks for that. Cool. But 
cake is basically talking about how you can give everyone the same ingredients and the same recipe and everybody's cake is going to taste different even if you think it wouldn't also like i think when it comes to whiskey the crazy thing in you talking about the wine versus whiskey wine has so many outside elements that you know the weather like fungus and all that kind of stuff that you were talking about whiskey outside whiskey you can get everything down to a science and just but that science is only going to take it to your distillate and then the second you put it in the barrel the barrel is the outside so it's almost like you still have that same like it's gonna taste i have an idea but it's like okay was it tight staves or or open staves like was it really getting in the wood how long did I put it in the wood? Where did I put it in the warehouse? Like all these other things come into play where you can control it to a point, but there's still some of that like, oh shit moment for you, right? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. That's one thing that, you know, is a parallel. And it's interesting coming back to wine country. Well, you know, south of wine country where we're just, uh, just south of Napa, about 20 minutes. I went off and I learned to make whiskey, you know, after that job in Petaluma, I met some people. I started teaching classes for the American Distilling Institute, you know, after only distilling for like three or four years. But it was one of the owners with a chemistry degree who were doing, you know, little things. It's not like big guys were giving classes and consulting at that time. So I started doing that. I met some uh, met some great guys, a guy named Brian Nolt, and moved out to uh, Breckenridge, Colorado, and opened Breckenridge Distillery which, uh, back in 2008. And we grew to a, a huge brand, lived up there at 9,600 foot elevation, this little ski town where it basically snows about eight months out of the year and just had a blast learning to do, like kind of hone my craft out. I did a lot of going out to Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, working with the network of people I met through the American Distilling Institute, got to learn from some great people, had some wonderful mentors and uh, yeah, it was great. But all that experience, you know, between Petaluma and Breckenridge and all that, I find myself right back here. I started a consulting business. I've consulted on a ton of projects and everybody has a consulting business, right? But I, I just do kind of little word of mouth stuff and I have a pretty good alumni of clients and I'm, I'm not going to list them off for you because that seems uh, <laughs> like not, not the right thing to do. Um, but anyway, end up back here in the relative same area where I started this whole journey working with an iconic winemaker who I respect. Never met him before. Turned out to be uh, as good a guy as he was a winemaker and just pioneering kind of brave guy who went out there and did put red blend on my label. And uh, I hope you drink it. And if you do, I hope you like it. And they did. And it became such a big thing. And he did the seat. You know, he followed that through to Orange Swift. A lot of the Orange Swift wines are not easy to categorize. They don't fall into something that you see on the at least the American shelf. We have American viticulture areas, but we don't have... AOCs and stuff where you could just call it Bordeaux and people know, oh, it's Cabernet, Merlot, Petit Bordeaux, things like that. It's, uh, <laughs> there's two more. I can't remember. I feel embarrassed about that. But he, don't uh, worry. Our listeners are not going to know. So it's fine. <laughs> I know I'm talking a lot of wine for a whiskey podcast, aren't I? I think it's interesting, though, because there's a lot of correlations. And, and that's like, I'm finding it interesting always when you learn something new. But if you think about like distinctions in whiskey, and you know what you have to do to call something a bourbon or what you have to do to call something a rye or Tennessee whiskey or whatever it is, right? And then I feel like Dave would kind of be like, yeah, I don't like that. 
and he would find that American whiskey category more interesting because there's so there's so many things that are stringent in the sense of like, okay, you have to use new charred white American oak. It has to be 51% corn. It can't go into the barrel over 125 proof, can't come out. You know, like, so all those things that are there, I feel like disruptors like disrupting. Yeah. You know, so even though you're saying straight bourbon whiskey and this is stuff that you have right now, you know, the label, you're not even, it's finished. And I'm not trying to like get you in trouble with the TTB or anything. No. But it says straight bourbon whiskey. Like it doesn't even call out the fin, you know, so you could tell he's kind of bucking the system on things anyway, because he's going to do what he's going to do. There was a conversation that was short lived because of the, uh, the, the marketing people. And I think they're probably right at this point where we talked about making a rye whiskey, a bourbon whiskey and our other, you know, which is an unclassified American whiskey because it doesn't go into new charto containers. And he was like, well, we just call them all whiskey and people will figure it out. They'll figure out that this one, when they taste it, like, oh, that tastes like a rye whiskey. And this one, hmm, what is that, a bourbon whiskey? And we're like, ah, oh, dude, I don't <laughs> I was like, I love it, Dave. Uh, and he was, I don't know. A lot of people were kind of like, mm, I, don't, I don't know. They're going to put us on some weird shelf, and they're not going to know what to do with it. And then people could be like, is this a bourbon whiskey? And then, you know, guys like you are going to be like, well, is it a bourbon whiskey? It tastes like a bourbon whiskey to me. No, and then um, there's going to be all the label. people. It's going to be all the people <laughs> that think that they're super smart. And they're going to be like, I could do the uh, the Savage and Cook test. Can you do that? Like, and then it would be great if you use like the lip service bottle. And sometimes it was rye. Sometimes it was bourbon. You just didn't know. Oh, just mix up the labels. Yeah. So it's just like yeah. it's three different labels. And then you just kind of put whiskey in it. And whichever one that goes in that label for the day went in the label for the day. <laughs> It could have been a really expensive failure too. So I think <laughs> I think you have to put, you know, at least what it is, right? In theory, I think for people that enjoy blind tasting, which I enjoy blind tasting, we started this whole podcast in the very beginning only doing blind tastings. And then we had kids and more kids and life happened and we couldn't sit there for an hour and do a blind tasting. We needed to be able to get a fifteen minute review done. So Correct. I think blind tasting is fun. I think there's a super niche community for it but i don't think you could necessarily scale a brand on it but it's all blind but i believe now that you have an established brand i think it might be fun to have one label that is just like we don't know what it is so you have burning chair you have lip service and then you have one label that's like whiskey blend. It's call like the orange swift of whatever. Like call it blind tasting. It's, yeah. uh, you just you just came up with our next label. Well, oh, I got it right now. <laughs> I hope your marketing people are listening because it's like gonna be some like horror story type thing though. But it's got a like somebody's hands like it's a face and hands are over eyes. Would be great. You should definitely put that in. I th- this is going to be in. Don't worry. This part will be in. Well, we just we just came up with the future, John. We did the, together. The, the hottest new thing, and, and with, yes, cheers. I'm going to move out there. We could do this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but cheers! I I forgot to cheers you back. There you go. Cheers. Yes. Um, Breckenridge. Talk to me a little bit about Breckenridge before we get more into this whiskey because it is beautiful. I was just there in March. Zeke was there in a couple times and fell skiing and messed up his shoulder or it's still messed up. But I was just there for a bachelor party, stopped by the distillery 
I mean, it's a fun place, but like gorgeous country out there. What do you like more, the the California countryside or you know the Colorado uh, going up in the mountains? Ah, you know, it's kind of nice to have both, isn't it? It is. Uh, but living up there for you know that that was not a a, a cushy project. We didn't have a you know the guys started that, and I'm you know was one of the partners. They brought me on for uh, you know to run the place. They put in the work man it was uh a uh, brian nolt hard work and <laughs> uh, lich he was our kind of like social chair who evolved into being just controlling the image of the brand and and, and the way we sold things and, and what we were uh, all of these people were just they were in on it and so you know they had other lives other jobs obviously because none of us were you know making a living off this well i guess i was uh but i i lived above the distillery in a in a tiny little apartment that eventually turned into an office you know it was fun it was it was fun taking this brand and like i said starting out with a 500 gallon pot still and literally 2,000 gallons of fermentation capacity, which is all we could manage a week. So basically making, you know, five barrels a week and seeing it become what it, what it has. I mean, we've, we've grown it to this thing and <laughs> it's, uh, and, you know, uh, public knowledge that we since been sold on to a company, um, but still managed by the same people. Brian Nolte's still at the helm. The guys I trained to be the distillery, you know, I eventually, if you're not, if your distillery isn't running well, like your production line after eight years, you've done something terribly wrong or you just suck at your job originally. And you've taught a bunch of people some really bad habits, like how to fail like you did. Um, that was not my, my case, thankfully. My assistant distillers and the people who became along the ranks from head distiller down to, uh, you know, a uh, new guy intern who's, who's working his way up. I got to train so many people and we hired well, found the right people. Anyway, I, I only say all this because I was not needed there anymore. I was consulting and I met Dave Finney's people. They, they said he wanted to start this. I thought about it. I talked it over with the CEO there. You know, he said, hey, I'm sad to see you go. And I don't, <laughs> as long as you're not leaving us, we're good. I would, uh, but, you know, go do your thing if you have to do it. And I think it was for the best because I just didn't have, we have like 27 products at Breckenridge when I finally left. You've been to the bar, you've seen the whole back bar, making things just to make things at that point. <laughs> I think the last thing I made was like an Akavit. And uh, it was like, it's like, who wants to drink this? Anyway, Breckenridge was an amazing experience. It was a, such a huge part of my life, uh, you know, 10 years from inception to, you know, about eight years of running the actual thing. And yeah, it was kind of the, my, my, I don't know. That's where I learned to learn to do what I do. No, I mean, I, I think it's a, a huge part of your life. And that's why I asked about it again. You know, I, I think um, learning, you're going from the wine part to the whiskey part and really getting to hone those skills and try a whole bunch of different shit. I mean, th there's mm -hmm. a thing when you say, hey, there was over 20 different things there. Well, that's just you figuring out and building up your resume and having more tricks up your sleeve. To bring it full circle, when you came to Savage and Cook and, and you're starting this with Dave and obviously Dave has an opinion and, and you have an opinion, how did that work? Like, did he have a vision of what he wanted or did he say like, I trust you with the whiskey i just kind of want this aesthetic yeah well you know as far as the packaging went i had no input on that outside of you know a few little like technical like hey do we have to put this on the bottle can we do this blah blah, blah. gave i'm not even going to try to step and swerve into his lane on that one because i'm 
I'm way too slow a car for that. He's uh, he's got that down. You're like, I could just tell you if it's straight, if we're putting straight whiskey on it, it's under four years. We got to put the age on. Like I could tell you that stuff, but like the rest of it. Exactly. But he also acknowledged, he's like, I don't, I don't know, you know, anything about making whiskey, but I like what you do. I like what you made out of Breckenridge. I like what you've done with the other whiskeys you've made. And, you know, he said, I'll leave you alone to that and, and we'll figure out how to finish it together, how to uh, make it unique to this project. But he had absolute faith in me to do that. And he always appreciated that. He didn't try to get involved with how to, I set up all the equipment that I just took you through and, and showed you there, set up the whole plant, way it flowed, the recipes, everything came through me. And I, but, you know, interpreted through him and I talking about what, what he wanted to do, not about the f- exact flavor profile of the particular whiskey, just about, I want a rye whiskey. I want a bourbon whiskey. I want another whiskey that's very uncommon, which is our American whiskey. And now I wish I'd have sent it to you, but sorry, that didn't make it to you. Um, it's all good. You know, I also didn't want to come down and, and try to reinterpret like my own. I didn't want to make a, a you know, for lack of a better term, like a Breckenridge 2.0. You know, we've got some fairly traditional mash bills, except for our rye, which uh, our lip service rye. But I wanted to tie in that element of what, you know, what Dave's done with his whole career, amazing wines he's made, which isn't that easy to do because, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, out on Breckenridge and at many other places that I've consulted with and what you see a lot in, in the industry is using dessert wine barrels, port barrels, Pedro Menez, sherry barrels, you know, Malaga barrels, Masala barrels, uh, Sauterne barrels, any dessert wine in the world, because uh, sweet wines uh, are very forgiving to age, you know, the, the barrels that sweet wines age in, dessert style wines age in, very forgiving to uh, not getting the extraction right with the spirit. They're typically used over and over and over until they're basically neutral in their wood profile. I mean, a port barrel will be recoupered for 50, 60 years before the thing's just about to fall apart and then it'll get sold to somebody and it comes to us. And so there's really no like wood extract to, to worry about there. You just have the port that's been absorbed into the capillaries of the wood. That's not the case with dry wine barrels, table wine barrels, if you would. Dave makes a lot of wines, but he doesn't make any dessert wines. He only makes... Jumping in here for a second, and you said, mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned this in the, the pregame all the best stuff happens in the pregame, y'all, but record button does not. We were talking about, I was like, ah, I think your salesperson took it easy on us. You know, your Virginia over there, she's awesome. We had a great conversation, but she's like, you know, I was kind of nervous about reaching out to you all at first because you are such haters of the the wine finish. And it's like, no, we're not haters. We, we want to like them because I like wine and I want to like a wine finish barrel. My whole take on it is that I feel like American whiskey, which is really funny because if you think about our spirit of our country and it's always like, you know, F you Britain, like we're even running our horses the opposite way you do just because we're not you. Like we are not them. And I feel like wine finishes on whiskey is such a cop out to scotch and you're just doing it not you, but like people started doing it because it's like, oh, that's what they do with scotch. Well, scotch is barley and it's all barley. And it's, you know, if you're doing a wine finish to barley, it's because you want to add sweetness. It could be dry sweetness. It could be anything, but you're trying to kind of add to that. The corn, the rye, wheat, 
barley you know that make up american whiskey it's sweet anyway rye is a little bit spicier but like you know i think it's a lot easier to put a good wine finish on a rye but yes bourbon is harder because you said i mean so i am agreeing with you when you're i when you're saying your job is tough but it's also the same reason why i feel like so many wine finishes that are used are not the right ones they're like oh we're just gonna do sherry because that's what scotch did and it's like well maybe sherry isn't the right thing to put with bourbon well allow me to retort no no no, i'm kidding uh yeah exactly they're interesting you know sweet like sweet it's you know classic thing of like you know cooking fundamentals and whatnot (laughs) you can as long as you don't overdo it you can pair like flavors and it's the reason that so many things are done in port barrels and cherry barrels and whatnot. Are they always the best? No, they're just the most consistent in the, in the thing you do. I had, I didn't like, I, you know, as I was getting into, I didn't have those barrels to deal with. And I honestly didn't approach this with saying, Davis is definitely going to work. I said, it's going to take a lot of experimentation. Luckily, you know, it took us, well, not luckily, but it took us almost four years to build this place, uh, which is a ridiculous building, two buildings uh, from 1864, which are, this is the most gorgeous place uh, I've been in let alone had a hand in building from from the beginning you're like can i get a bedroom upstairs here (laughs) (laughs) yeah right um but no it's uh before i get too far off of it the dry wine finishes they're difficult they're 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 hard to manage they're very short you know where some people are like oh yeah we put it in port barrel for six months you know for, for nine months for a year whatever it may be uh with these all of these finishers are 45 to 60 days and any more than that you start extracting tannin from the wood because you know uh, tannin's my main culprit that, that i'm trying to uh you know keep it at bay i can't i can't keep it out of the whiskey because it's going to get extracted uh they're not charred you know we char whiskey barrels specifically to denature tannin in the wood you know we toast them to modify that hemicellulose layer uh, so that we can turn, you know, cis and trans lactones into interesting flavors. We can convert things into guaiacol and methyl guaiacol and all these things that make interesting flavors in the whiskey, but we char it at the end to denature those tannins. A lot of people don't talk about that. So I find that super interesting. And I think that's the thing for me when it is the wine finishes, like the length of finish what you all do kind of prepping for that and then going into the the length of finish. I mean, I, I guess there was a lot of experimentation that you probably did and, and wash, rinse, repeat on how long you were going to keep it in there. How did you kind of hone it in? Was it just like, okay, I know I'm going to taste it every week in the beginning and then it's going to go to daily at a certain point or? Yeah. Well, the initial, you know, experimentation, we, we taste it weekly and then, you know, daily when we got towards where we think we wanted it. And yeah, you know, we had a few, years while building this beautiful facility to, to get these recipes right and dave was right there with me chasing things we you know dave and uh, lauren blanchard the general manager we worked very closely getting these things just right what we arrived at after a lot of experimentation i am always pretty confident <laughs> always pretty confident that's uh <laughs> Uh, 45 days is going to be my minimum aging. And so, but it's always a window between 45 and 60 days. And each barrel is judged independently. I mean, it's a pain in the ass for the guys in the warehouse because at about, you know, 45 days, we all get around the table. Me and, you know, I have four other distillers and blenders who, who work closely with me and we taste them and evaluate them. You know, still Dave's, this is 
very much what Dave and I did when we developed these. He's not always around. He's very busy. But if he's there, you know, he, he gets in on it too. We taste through them. And is this barrel ready? Is this barrel ready? Is this barrel ready? Uh, and we and we kind of make some judgments. That's the art of it. You know, the uh, beyond the science of knowing how to separate compounds by their differing boiling points, you know, which is distillation, as you pointed out, you know, microbiology and fermentation and then, and then chemistry and, and distillation, turning it into something that people want to drink. We judge each one independently. And again, in the other part of this, uh, you know, not to belay, I don't want to belabor that idea. It's 45 to 60 days, each barrel independently evaluated when it's ready, we pull it literally like one barrel at a time, or, you know, sometimes three or four barrels at a time will come and we dump them to vat. And that's our wine barrel finished portion. Now, that's not 100% of what's in the bottle. That would be too much. We, we didn't set out to make wine-flavored whiskey, wine-flavored bourbon. We wanted that element to it to elevate it a little bit, but at 100%, it's all it is. So like our bourbon whiskey, you know, I don't know when you want to segue into drinking some of this stuff, but you've I've got been the bourbon dr- chair in front of you. I've been drinking it the whole time, so we we can. Okay. I have them all lined up. They're right here, just so you know. You see them. I've been, I've been sipping right. on them. Well, the burning chair, and this is so funny because I have, it's another absolutely Dave thing. I've never had named whiskeys. I've made a hell of a lot of bourbon whiskeys. I've made a lot of rye whiskeys. And when we were doing this project, you know, his labels define his things here and he had names for them. You know, the rye is the lip service and you can see why because you have the bottle in front of you. I know your listeners can't, but go seek one out and uh, you'll understand. The burning chair. Mm, yeah, very uh, t- and as I talk about these things, we end up just talking about them in these terms. Hey, the burning chair. What we're talking about is our bourbon whiskey, and nobody knows that. They're like, what are you talking about? What is a burning chair whiskey? <laughs> but it is. I but, mean, when it first came out, the funny thing about it, and I think this is what, from a marketing standpoint, makes it interesting. When you name it like that, you're not yeah. necessarily thinking Savage and Cook. So I knew burning chair whiskey. Listen. I've had a bourbon podcast thing since 2016. I've, you know, I've lived in Kentucky. I graduated from Kentucky. Bourbon and whiskey was everywhere. I always thought Burning Chair was the name of the brand. So when people reached out and said like, you know, we want to get Jordan on with you. I was like, what Savage and Cook? You know, like, and, (laughs) and I think that is logistically like the marketing nightmare, but it's a great thing too. Cause it's like, okay, you know, burning chair, but people think burning chair is the brand. People think lip sometimes, service is the brand. Yeah. They think they're two different brands sometimes. Uh, it's, yeah, exactly. You know, Dave's labels are very understated in the sense of mm-hmm. understated and overstated at the same time. Like they make a statement, but there's not a lot of words and it easily recognizable. Like, I mean, aesthetically from the wine to the whiskey, like there is a vibe at the same time it's like you know you did have a branded whiskey it was just you had breckenridge bourbon whiskey you know it wasn't burning chair but it was breckenridge like right we yeah we didn't we didn't give them 12 different names we put breckenridge on everything and uh you know that worked for us this has worked for dave always he didn't put orange swift on the front of his all of his wines yeah you know Nobody, you'd see Saldo or Mercury Head or Papillon or all these different wines he made. And you had to turn it around and read the fine print, just like you do with ours, to see that it's one company. Or, you know, you you have, I love the thing about, like, you know, Machete is one of my favorite ones. And Mm -hmm. it's just a 
badass girl with a machete on the label like doesn't really say much but it tells you all you need to know eight years in the desert is a great one too but there there's not a lot on that label like it's just funny like i mean even you know papillion just has the the tattoo across hands we've got off on a huge tangent here but uh i I think it's uh, like a marketing we got on the marketing tangent but i want to know about the whiskey that's in well, here. Yeah, we were talking about the wine finishes, and I was just expressing that you know, 100% of these whiskeys don't go into the wine into the wine barrels. It's it's overpowering. It turns it into something that is uh, I can say indistinguishable from you know the base spirit of bourbon whiskey or rye whiskey or whatnot. But it's it's more than we wanted to do. We didn't want to make flavored whiskey. So you know, like the the burning chair bourbon whiskey, which is a bourbon whiskey, a four year bourbon whiskey. 18% of it goes into Cabernet Sauvignon casks. And they're from a very big mid-Napa Valley up around St. Helena Project. They only see two or three vintages before I get them. So again, they're very aggressive, French oak, uncharred, fairly well toasted. But again, when I put whiskey into them, I have to monitor them daily. You know, And again, I, I feel like I'm pretty safe up to 45 days, although the Cabernet Sauvignon casts are definitely my the ones I worry about the most. And as we you know, get between that 45, 60-day window, we're checking them daily, weekly, depending on how each barrel is developing. And we try to pull them at just the right time. And you got to be a little, like a day ahead of it. I only bring all this up because it's they're so... So much less forgiving when you're dealing with wine that was in barrel that has no significant residual sugar, like a dessert wine does, a port or a sauterne or bedroom and a sherry or something that has so much residual sugar inherent to the wine that it's going to mask some of the barrel extract that you get. With these, the barrel extract really comes forward. I mean, you still get the wine elements, which is what we're trying to extract. I'm not going to say I don't want anything from the French oak. But I want to minimize it. You know, there's a good reason that whiskeys aren't aged in French oak. And it's not just because they're really expensive, because, you know, somebody would have played on that. You know, these are aged in, uh, you know, new char number one limousine oak. It'd be a thing. But extracts are not conducive to the to the flavors. And in my opinion, I'm sure there's somebody who's going to disagree with me in the comments below. But no, they won't disagree. You know, it's, it's your it's your thing. But don't let me stop you if you were going to. No, no, no. I mean, I, I never knew it would be my thing. I never even thought about doing it until I met Dave. And then, you know, looking through the portfolio of his wines, it's like, wow, these are all relatively dry table wines. I mean, I, this is the thing, John, to send anywhere you want when we were talking about what we were talking about earlier. Can you name one other whiskey that's aged in like a Cabernet Semillon or Grenache or Zinfandel? Something that's not specifically a dessert wine, like port, sherry. I'm, I could I name one. Wine. Please. Which one? Taconic does a Cabernet. Okay. So out of New York. Taconic, where? Out of New York. Okay, I got to find that one and kill it. No, I'm <laughs> um. <laughs> but they do a lot of finishes. They did uh, an ice cider finish that was mm-hmm. super, super good. Crazy thing about it is <laughs> they forgot they did it. You know, we reached out and said, like, <laughs> they do a maple syrup finished one that is great. They did a Mizu cask. They did some other stuff so they're playing around i love the craft brands that aren't afraid to try things it's like and i love when they're trying things i mean taconic's the same you're not coming in going all right like we're gonna do a port a sherry and a cognac and we're gonna call it a day you know like i love that you're let's make it a little tough 
And what I'm finding in, I will say, Virginia, don't worry, you could breathe a sigh of relief. I do like the burning chair, but I think it's figuring out the science behind it, that it's not all of the whiskey that is just going into wine barrels and that you're methodically doing, you know, because I feel like I can still get the bourbon coming through. My problem with wine finishes, again, I, I said my whole thing about you know what scotch does versus what we do, but I feel like the wine overpowers the whiskey to the point where you can't taste the whiskey and it just becomes about the wine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that happens too much and sometimes absolutely on purpose too. It's like, you know, let's, we're, we're going to make something that tastes totally different from this category. And, and this is a, a way to do it. And they layer over way too much. I've been guilty of it in the past too. But, um, you know, with this, it had to it inevitably had to be subtle. Otherwise, we were going to make the texture of the whiskey just unpalatable. And it probably pushed you to find some new things and and new ways to approach, you know, the finishing. And it's probably going to open the door in the future, you know, because full disclosure, right? This is MGP. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, and anybody who's listening is not dumb. Like you said, it took four years to build out the building. Y'all just opened in 2018. Now, I will say I saw. Uh, 24 inch column still and they're pumping stuff up through it daily so they are making their own juice now but you had to start somewhere so is this high ride mgp low rye mgp what do you go for there it's the lower it's the lower rye recipe the 21 percent from mgpi one of the unique things we did with it though because dave well quite frankly could afford it and we had the time to build this place out i said you know what let's not buy four-year-old whiskey that's been aged in indiana let's buy it new make and Let's bring it to our area here, Mare Island, sandwiched between the Napa River and you know San Pablo Bay, beautiful little island in the in the East Bay, of, uh, San Francisco Bay area. And let's age it here. And I think a underrated kind of thing about whiskey is it does have a terroir. You were talking about it earlier when we were talking about the music. You know, uh, the process up to the final. A lot, and this is probably a, you know a bigger conversation to be had than this, but. It's, you know, batch distillation versus continuous distillation, which when you're making quantities, it's continuous distillation. You still have a cut to make at the end. You still have your column has run out of wash to feed. Your doubler is now in reduction phase and you're, and you know, you've hopefully you've tuned it in in the day to have exactly how much of those late fraction alcohols you want in there. But there, when you finish it, you got to pay attention to it. Now you're in batch distillation. Now you're running a pot still. And where you cut that is one of those first like artistic decisions you make. And then from there, what kind of cooperage you put it into? And from there, what are the conditions you're aging in? Is how, and how well do you manipulate them? Do you let your natural environment define what your whiskey is going to be? Or do you humidify your barrel house and heat it and cool it to, you know, up in Colorado, we, <laughs> we didn't have a choice. We it would have never, it would have been, you know, it would have tasted like three year at 12 year if we never pumped some heat into that place. But, (laughs) but we did. And, uh, but here we've got two different barrel aging places. And I hope all of you people come out and see this place. It's it's an amazing distillery out on, on Mare Island. 
but we've got one aging warehouse that's you know two two buildings over, and we've got the main building. We decided to let this just kind of be the terroir of the place uh, over there. I'm not saying we're manipulating it too much, but humidity needs to be controlled to create the kind of evaporative loss that you need, which is very important to the esterification of the whiskey as it reduces. So we encourage higher humidity in there than would naturally be ambient, and we try to you know make sure it cycles some heat in here. We're just kind of letting it go, and there's no small amount of burn in these two you know, uh, buildings with about a, a 27,000 foot square foot, uh, footprint. We've, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here and what happens here. And as you said, we are four years old, but we really didn't get the bugs worked out. You set up all this big equipment, then you've got about a year of just debugging it. Somebody wired a pump backwards. <laughs> Somebody put a pipe going to the wrong place. Uh, you find out all these things one thing at a time. You try to get too upset. You just fix them as you go and you debug it from the front end to the back end. Now you're actually in production. And we got a pretty good production run in 2019. And then we were on our way in 2020 and then, you know, COVID hit. And we thought about shutting down until we got a call from the state office saying, hey, can you guys make hand sanitizer? And we did that. As many of my colleagues have done, so many of us, I think all of us did. (laughs) But uh, we did nothing but that for 2020. If I never see another drum of glycerin in my life, I'd be happy with that. Uh, But we we did what we could. And uh, we got to employ a lot of like out of work bartenders and servers and stuff to help us bottle this stuff up. That was nice to kind of you know, get back a little bit into the industry. Anyway, we got through it. But the point being, we didn't make any freaking whiskey. So we have a big hole in our inventory, which is 2020. 2021 was great on building inventory. And now 2022, we have done well. So we are not going to go the route of making a little bit of our own and then blending it in with stuff we continue to buy from Indiana, Tennessee, places like that. It's it worked very well for us out of Breckenridge. Still does, um, although so much is, is is absolutely made in house now. But you know, it's, for here, it's I just wanted to control it internally, and we didn't need to sell you know a million cases in four years, which is helpful. Like that, but we did. Well, I mean, it's it's <laughs> yes. helpful, right? But I, I guess the question we, the question I have from that did you keep the mash bills the same as the MGP that you got and then the Tennessee rye that you got for I absolutely did the only difference will be that the grains were grown here in California so it's nice thing about California we've got uh, you know Sacramento Valley just uh, an hour behind me here and all of our corn and rye and barley is grown there we have our own malt but not our own but uh, there's a company Ad, uh, Admiral Malting. That's a maltster over on Alameda. I say over on Alameda because Alameda is kind of another little naval base island. They malt our barley to our exact specifications, a, a beautiful enzymatic distiller's malt, you know, low flavor profile, but high enzymatic potential. And uh, all those grains come together here and we make them. So in that sense, it will be different. It'll have, you know, the, the grains were grown in a different place. Uh, everything that was made for uh, out at MGPI is, you know, Iowa, Indiana grains, corn, rye, barley. So that'll be slightly different. Same cooperage. As I said, we brought it out to the island, aged it here in uh, our own kind of wood for in our own conditions. So it'll be slightly different, but I don't think it'll be that different. Um, well, the interesting thing, too, is you, you talk about bringing it out there. Your distillery, I know you haven't been aging things there long, but you have some that are you know three years old now. Are you finding like 
at MGPI, it is a concrete warehouse. So the proof actually goes down the longer you age it there. Are you finding the same thing in your buildings because they're not, I mean, I guess the temperature controlled ones, you probably have more of a say in that, but are you noticing any proof loss in the old brick buildings that you're in? Yeah. And I, and I like that. I'm, uh, uh, I didn't, you know, I showed you around the two beautiful, I didn't take you over to, but we found a, a beautiful, well, it's not beautiful at all. It looks like a juvenile detention facility, but it's entirely concrete. It was a parts building for the Navy here, and it's concrete floor to ceiling thick, like 16 inches. And the temperature in there is so consistent. We can control to some degree the, the heating, cooling, whatnot, without overdoing it. Um, we use, use air exchange from outside. We don't use, you know, HVAC systems. I, I, that's a long-winded way of answering your question, John. I, I did get some distillate from the same year that was the first, you know, what we of what we bought to, that goes into this burning chair, aged out in Indiana, and they are absolutely night and day. So, um, yeah, it is. And and just you know, I know we've been talking for a long time and not talking enough about the whiskey, but you know, proof loss is not the worst thing in the world. Your burning chair is eighty-eight proof right now. The lip service is ninety proof. Yo, not the worst thing in the world. You're not going to be kicking and screaming because you already kind of water it down anyway to the the proof that you want it to be at. Why 88? Any any well, specific you reason? Um, it's it's where I thought it uh, drank well on its own, and also was versatile enough to be a mixer. You know, not being too low, not being too crazy high, where you had to over dilute and kind of compromise on flavors. But I mean, if you want to hear my philosophy on that whole thing, I mean, I think reduction in alcohol, like to your know, evaporative loss, angel share, whatever romantic you want to get about it, is uh, is the right way to go. You want to lose alcohol to evaporative loss and, and reduce. So say you put it in the barrel at 120, you know, 125 proof is the, is the legal limit for bourbon we put ours in at 120 as it reduces through aging i would rather it go you know and they don't say it can't go over 125 you put it in at 120 or 125 and then you put it in conditions that are low humidity you're going to get water evaporation and you're going to concentrate it and that's how you end up with something like bookers which is great you know and it's up in the high ricks and it gets up to 130 you know 120 130 proof that's fine but that's why they bottle that at barrel strength i like Starting at 120, reducing to 116, 114, and then adding just a little bit of beautiful, pristine water because you've you've hard-earned those extracts out of the barrel over four, six, eight, however many years you decide to age your whiskey. And then to just dilute those out with water that hasn't aged in anything, it thins out the flavor profile of your whiskey. So I'd rather reduce my strength down to closer to my bottle strength and then just add a little bit of water and, you know, get less product marketing or the accounting department would prefer me to go the other way i'm sure (laughs) but there's also a reason why not only do you have your reputation that's been built over many many years in this industry but you know you have dave's reputation too because his name's on Mm -hmm. the bottle so it's like you know the good thing is it sounds to me like your boss is not going to be somebody who's like you know what put a whole bunch of water in it dilute it like he's going to say do it the right way yeah, we t- we try to you know t- control as many variables as we can. Let our environment dictate a unique flavor profile, and I mean, it's a very winemaker's approach. You know, you've you've got the there's a the, an essence of terroir to this thing. It's a it's a not a used term in whiskey makers, and it sounds you know super kind of pretentious sometimes. 
but I do really like this burning chair. Surprisingly enough, like I, I really wish Zeke wasn't on assignment. No. And I think it's because it's not the full finish. Like it is just enough that it's giving it a little bit of fruity balance on the mid palate. I get some nice rye spice on, you know, on the tongue and the lips, you know, even though it is the low rye, but sometimes that MGP low rye will sneak up on you and really tingle. So I like the tingle I get on my lips on that. And I get, you know, a hint of corn. And so I think with it, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously you've perfected it and I don't know if that's what you were trying to get at, but you know, I am getting a, a good mix of, of the fruit and then I'm getting a, a good mix of the bourbon flavor coming through as well. And I really just appreciate that a good wine finish, my beef on it has always been like the wine should complement the whiskey and the whiskey should not be an afterthought to the wine. So just well done. I'm Thank super you. pumped. We all agree with you here and I, that's what I brought to the table, you know, and it was a, a thing when with talking with Dave, who's a winemaker, was like, do you want to make it all about the wine? He's like, no, it's whiskey. If you think it makes sense, let's give it a, a wine element. And this is, you know, 18% is where we ended up. And I think it was perfectly subtle and humble and complimentary. And yeah, I agree with you. I think it's overdone too often. Moving on to this lip service. So this is three-year Tennessee whiskey. What is the mash? Because you said the mash was unique on this one. Fairly unique. So I uh, got this from someone who was willing to put it together for us. I'm not trying to be cryptic. I'm just trying to be respectful. Uh, it's a 51% rye recipe. So similar to, well, actually exactly the same as what uh, Rittenhouse does, um, which is one of my favorites. And I know it's a lot of people's favorites now. I don't think it was so much five years ago when I started talking about these people, but 51% rye, 45% corn, 4% malted barley, made out in Tennessee, brought to the island for its aging and you know we knew we were going to have multiple years to do this so it's we didn't just have one batch made you know we had batches contracted year over year and i have some stuff that aged out of my program that now becomes our reserves which i'm, I'm pointing at which i know you, you can't <laughs> I see, can see it all. radio <laughs> the more we drink this yeah uh, but anyway, uh, I did pull it at three years, not because I got impatient. I really wanted to try to retain that like essential peppery spiciness we were talking about in rye whiskeys. I knew I had that buffer of the 45% corn, which is why I think a lot of people got into like Rittenhouse and stuff. It, it's a bourbon rye. I mean, I'll tell you, I am in a very public breakup with 95.5 rye and it's just the mint and the wintergreen and all of it. I mean, I, I have a lot of good friends that make 95.5 and that put out 95.5. It's just, I prefer more of a Kentucky rye that has you know more corn and more balance. I just feel like 95.5. It's just, if I wanted to drink a pine cone air freshener, I would drink a pine cone air freshener. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't hold my tongue there. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are turned off of rye because of 95.5. It's uh they think that's what rye is. And it's and and we all know why. I mean it's it's the easiest to find and buy and very popular 
formula put into some very big brands. Uh, and it's probably the easiest to age in the sense of like you can get a product that's two year rye and the spiciness on it. Nobody's going to bad an eye. You know, bourbon, they're like, is it at least four years old? Is it all this other stuff? I think you, you could get away with a little more with the rye. But like rye is what the country was founded on. The country was not founded on bourbon. The country was founded on rye. George Washington had a rye distillery. No, absolutely. And honestly, you know, bourbon is what people buy. So that pays the bills around here. But our rye whiskey, which I haven't even finished talking about, but now I'm going to go into the economics of it. We position this as it's not the least expensive thing we make, but it's the least expensive to the public. And this ends up on the shelf, depending on where you are. If you're in New York, it's probably going to be, you know, $50. Actually, I think it's about 40 there. Uh, Anywhere else, I'm talking about Manhattan there, by the way. I love you, Manhattan. In most of the country, it ends up around 32 to 36 six dollars like we're, we're trying to get this as opposed to our burning chair bourbon which which is around 50 most places 40 40 to 50 dollars and we tried to make it something that you know people would take a chance on dave gave it a cool label and again that's about as far as i'm going to go on freaking price because now i now i have to hate myself no uh, it's I, feel- <laughs> I, I was gonna if you didn't bring it up i was gonna bring it up at least by me where I am in Tennessee. Yeah, you're in Tennessee, right? So Which I'm going to be in Nashville next week, by the way. I know. Here. They they were saying something about it, so maybe we'll talk after. Savage & Cook, the lip service rye whiskey is $33. If I were to do it drizzly right now, so if I were to get it delivered to my house, it's $33. Bucks. Uh, Burning Chair, I think, is 55 And Second Glance, I think, was 40 It's still, and that's the thing, I think that category from 30 to you know 60 is a category that is being overlooked right now that needs there are so many of these bottles that used to be 50 that are now 80 90 100 when people are looking at what am i going to do for a drinker it's like i'm either going to go up to kentucky i'm going to buy a shit ton of jts brown and uh dan and i'm going to come down and that's those bottled and bonds are going to be my drinkers or you got to find something that is you know like this lip service rye for 33 bucks is a damn good rye tell me about what you finished it in as well yeah three years in char number three new american and i've got a pretty consistent bent to my whiskeys i'm not trying to create you know as a chemist too many variables i know what i want char number four for some things for some specialty products but but my bourbon and my rye are both done char number three uh, medium plus toast the underlying toast you know charred heads i don't want any raw wood touching the whiskey so three years uh, in that cooperage, and then I transfer, as I said, 18% for the uh, bourbon whiskey, 25% for this one, because I wanted to layer over it with a more subtle wine finish, which is our Grenache finish. Grenache, not a, it's a very common grape in the world. This particular one uh, comes from a little project of Dave's out in uh, Maury, France, and I get the barrels over here. We kind of swell them again and they just have this beautiful floral kind of blueberry light nothing as intense as the cabernet 70 home barrels that we put the bourbon whiskey into but and again talking about that window of of aging these trend more towards the like 60 days maybe sometimes just a few more because they're well used five six sometimes seven vintages in those before i get them and then uh, we didn't want to make it a wine flavored rye i think it's still it's still rye i just what i wanted to do was retain the spiciness by not over aging it in new oak and then 
pull back some of those sweet, more floral kind of fruit notes <laughs> in a finishing process. But I knew that to do that, I, I needed to pull it early, which you know necessitated a, an age statement. It would have been much easier to, to leave it in the barrel for four years, not put an age statement on it, and not have to worry about some of these other things. I could have gotten the barrel sweetness, but I wanted to hold back on the initial barrel sweetness because we're already making a high corn rye recipe. I didn't want to make it too bourbon-like. I wanted to still make it rye-like, backload some of those fruit characters, some of that sweetness from the wine finish. And I sound like a crazy person who just overthought this thing for too many nights and sat up drawing fucking symbols on a glass window <laughs> and came up with the world's most complicated rye formula. Um, but that's kind of who I am. You kind of had to beautiful mind it. <laughs> I, did. I did. At least in a completely acting Ru- Russell Crowe sort of way, like, and not the real guy. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> But I do, I mean, you described it beautifully and I'm not trying to like, and I appreciate that. I was just going to say like, I love the fact that I still get a ton of rye spice on this, even though that Grenache is in there. And you described exactly like what I was thinking in such a better way. So thank you for that. Okay. But I think absolutely. I think you did. You killed it with that. And like, you don't understand. I am kind of at a loss for words right now because I have not found wine finished whiskeys that I'm like excited about. And then you throw the price on top of this, and I'm like, oh shit! I think I just found like my wine brand. You know, like my wine finished brand. It's my hats off to you. You really did a killer job in the sense of retaining the whiskey with the wine. And like, that's all I ever wanted. I feel like I'm like, I'm just a guy waiting for my whiskey to have a little bit of wine, a little bit of whiskey. You cracked the code. Well, thank you. I mean, at least not, you know, hate wine finished whiskeys because they've been done in a subtle way where you can appreciate it and say, yes, that added something. It didn't just become the whole thing. Yes. And And last but not least here, we have. Yeah. That's why I sent you a rye sample because, you know. Oh, it's. Oh, I get it now. 114.3 proof. What else can you tell me about this one? Interpreting it, I don't take the TTB uh, alphanumeric system when I name them internally, but 1812 are uh, not too hard to interpret. 2018, December, rye. It happens to be yours. What's the proof say on yours? I I do each bottle. Yours 1163? 114.3. 114.3. Ah, see, I kept the stronger stuff for myself. Each one is an individual barrel lot. This is something we do for our... uh, single barrel program but it is from directly in the same area maybe one level up in the ricks it's so funny the rick houses i've been at this for you know 15 years now and it's always rick houses and these guys have almost got me calling them sellers again because they're all winemakers <laughs> like what's in the cellar <sighs> you're like it's uh, it's up it can't be a seller if it's up yeah and like what abv is this it's like ah uh, it's at uh divide by two uh 40 44 <laughs> <laughs> just talking proof and it's a rickhouse anyway just being funny uh so anyway 
This is uh, not finished in the Grenache barrels. I just wanted you to know what the pure expression, again, you know, almost four years. I, I wanted to send you what's primarily in the bottle, three and change. And just so you had a baseline for, for the rye. No, I, I appreciate it. And it's good. It's intensely spicy. I know that. If you hit it with a little bit of water, it'll roll that back a little bit. I wanted to send you a barrel sample in case you want, you know, everybody wants uh, high octane these days. It was a nice, it was a nice nightcap to cap off the good conversation. And I'm just pulling for you guys. I want to go out there. I know that's a lot with a six-year-old for me to just leave and go to distilleries all around the country. But one day, maybe next week, we'll get to have a drink, all that other good stuff. Um, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thank you for turning me into a believer for there's hope for wine finished whiskeys. You are welcome on this show anytime you want. so your doors open, all that good stuff. But thank you again. Absolutely. It was, it was good having a drink with you. Spending a, a couple hours now, looks like, by my ticker uh, talking. And uh, have a thank you for glad I changed your mind a little bit. <laughs> Be cautious. Wine finishes aren't always done well, but uh, uh, I hope you keep liking ours. And thank you to all your listeners if you, uh, if you get out there and give it a try. I'd appreciate it so I can keep making it. Go to savageandcook.com and that's Cook, C-O-O-K-E. They're on the socials and all that fun stuff too. You can find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dads, Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Please leave us an open and honest review just like we leave open and honest reviews about the whiskey we drink. And we're here in Nashville, Tennessee. Cheers. Cheers.